All right, if you have a Bible, open to Luke 18. Luke 18, verse 9, it's a short little story today. Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. I want to start with a question. Why do you go to church? Why do we come here every Sunday? That's a good answer, Dave. <laughs> Undoubtedly, there are a whole bunch of different reasons, and I'm sure if we pulled everyone in this room, we'd have as many reasons as there are people. But I want you to really think about that this morning as we get started in this text. Why do we come here? Why are you here? Is it out of obligation? Is it out of duty? Did you sign up to do some role this morning, serve coffee or greet people, and so you kind of feel like you have to be here? This is just what you do. You just go to church on Sunday. Why are you here? Is it to make friends? Is it to build community into your life? Are you here because you are lonely? Is it to get something tangible, like food, to grub on the halftime snacks, which are quite excellent, by the way. <laughs> you guys do a great job with that. Are you here for the ladies? <laughs> or the dudes? <laughs> Why are you here? Is it because you want your kids to have some religious education? Is it for the free hour of childcare? Why are you here? Is it to please God? Is it because you love Jesus? Is it to sing songs? Is it to take communion? Why are you here? Is it because you lack meaning and purpose in your life? You're trying to connect to something bigger than yourself. Maybe you have no idea why you're here. So let me ask the question again. Why are you here? Why do we go to church? Now, my intention here is not to put any sort of value or judgment on those questions. I simply want to ask them. And hopefully in asking them, I raise some tension for you. Maybe you found those questions to be frustrating or even irritating. That's good. I want you to think about that question again. Why are you here? Oftentimes, with most stuff in life, to be honest, we don't really think about why we do the things that we do, right? And as a result, we sort of drift towards whatever is most comfortable for us, whether that place is healthy or not. So this text, I think, raises these kinds of questions for us, forces us to ask that kind of question. What are we doing here? Why are we here? And that's going to be the center of our conversation this morning. Before we get deeper into that, though, a quick review of where we've been. So Pastor Albert has been teaching through the Old Testament book of Esther during this quarter. It's been a lot of fun. In fact, last week we had Rich Robinson from Jews for Jesus out, and he talked about the book of Esther and some of the cultural background. And if you missed that, go watch the video online. It was definitely worth checking out. But that's where we've been for the most part. And in the weeks where 
Albert has been out, we've been looking at the Gospel of Luke, and in particular at a series of stories that Jesus tells right in the middle of Luke's Gospel, a series of stories that are unique to Luke's telling of the Jesus story. They don't show up in any of the other Gospels. And what's going on here in this section is that Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem. There's this sort of impending doom that kind of hangs over the middle section of Luke as he gets closer and closer to Jerusalem, closer to his destiny, where, of course, he's going to lay his life down on the cross. So Jesus is on the road, and as he makes his way towards Jerusalem, he encounters more and more hostility, more and more resistance. And the heart of that resistance comes from the religious authorities of the day, and in particular, a sect of authorities called the Pharisees. And the Pharisees in particular are frustrated, and not just frustrated, they're growing more and more angry, to be honest, with Jesus, because he continually is taking the categories that they had created and flipping them upside down. Categories about who was clean and who was unclean. This was a very important distinction in their culture. Who was in and who was out? Who was a sinner and who was good? Jesus is just flipping all of that on its head. And as he does that, these guys become more and more frustrated with him. And what Jesus does, and what I find to be really interesting, is that in the face of that resistance, in the face of that hostility, he tells stories. Stories that are designed to expose and confront their faulty theology, their faulty thinking that had led to these false dichotomies of in and out, clean and unclean, sinner and good. So that's sort of the background for this story. Now, as we've talked about some of these parables that Jesus tells in the travel narratives, some of them have been really difficult to wrap our minds around. And it kind of forces us to ask the question, what is Jesus trying to say? Today's story, pretty clear, <laughs> not very ambiguous at all. And verse 9 sets the scene. We also rarely get this kind of insight into who Jesus is talking to. Verse 9 says this, Jesus tells this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Sound like a real fun group of people, right? <laughs> so it's very clear right from the beginning who Jesus is speaking to, and I think it helps us see where he's going to go with this story. Now, here's a fun fact, okay? Most of the stories that Jesus tells in this travel narratives section take place in a non-religious setting. Okay, there are stories about farmers and businessmen, kings and servants, weddings and parties, shepherds and coins and fathers and sons, what we might call normal life kinds of settings. And here's another place where Jesus is sort of messing with the categories. He's blurring the lines between the sacred and the secular. This was a very important distinction for some people that I grew up with. And I grew up in the church, and so there was this thinking that there was like non-Christian secular music, and then there was like Christian holy music. Anybody else grow up with this? Know what I'm talking about? There's a few of us. Okay, good. Lisa, I know you know. <laughs> there were Christian movies, and then there were Hollywood movies. There was Christian literature, and there were worldly books. And part of that comes from this good place of wanting to be pure and holy and think about things that are good and righteous and all that kind of stuff. But what it really did was it set up, again, this dichotomy between what you might call your spiritual life and then your regular, everyday, quote-unquote, normal life. 
These are categories that did not exist for Jesus. He saw the kingdom of God reaching into all of life, fully integrated into the human experience. Jesus would say it like this, you don't have a spiritual life, you are a spiritual life. Luke 17, Jesus says, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. There weren't sacred places and secular places for Jesus. There were just places. And his stories reflect this. So here's what's interesting. Today's story is the one story that Jesus tells in this section in Luke's gospel that actually takes place in church. Every other story in what we might call, again, a non-religious setting. So this is a church story. And back to verse 9, who's the audience? Church people. Self-righteous church people. People who think they're good. But in this introduction, in in verse 9, there are a couple of hints, a couple of clues that these folks, as confident as they might be, are not quite as good as they think. So first clue is this. Where do they place their trust? In themselves. They place their trust in themselves. Now, this is a major problem theologically on kind of a big picture scale. But it's also a major problem in terms of the stories that Jesus has been telling. And story after story, Jesus is extending this invitation to people. Hey, stop trying to do it on your own. Stop trying to justify yourself. Let me do that work for you instead. There's a whole bunch of stories we could point to, but the one that I think really serves as the prototype is the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. This, of course, is the story about a son who tells off his father, runs to a far-off land, as far away from his family as he can get. But then he has this moment. It comes in Luke 15, verse 17. When he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. What's the key phrase there? When he came to himself. Some translations will say when he came to his senses or when he came to the end of himself. However it might be translated in your Bible, there's this sense here that the son has finally come to grips with the truth that he cannot do it on his own. He cannot justify himself. He cannot make himself right. And so it is at that point that he turns around and heads home. This is where we get the word repent. Repent literally means to turn around and to go back to where you started. Now the audience that Jesus is speaking to here in Luke chapter 18 is not there yet, right? They have not come to the end of themselves. They're still very much wrapped up in themselves. And I think this is partly why Jesus tells such a straight up unambiguous story. Right? Sometimes when we're so caught up in ourselves, we need the truth to come at us pretty directly. <laughs> now, the second clue, the second clue that these folks are not as righteous as they might think they are, is that they treat others with contempt. To think of yourself righteous and to treat others with contempt is a violation of the most fundamental law in Scripture. In fact, when Jesus is asked that question... What is the most fundamental law? He says this, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. 
This is what theologian Dallas Willard calls the unity of spiritual orientation. That's her fancy theological term for the day. The unity of spiritual orientation. What does that mean? He writes, to understand Jesus, we must realize that deep in our orientations of our spirit, we cannot have one posture towards God and a different one towards people. We are a whole being. You are a spiritual life. And our true character pervades everything we do. We cannot love God and hate human beings. Unity of spiritual orientation. That is essentially what this parable is about. Jesus is very directly, almost in a funny way. I actually find it quite funny. <laughs> this very direct way, exposing this truth. You cannot be righteous and treat other people with contempt. Now, when we read a story like this, it's really easy to contrast these two characters, Pharisee and the tax collector, make one the hero and one the villain. And that is, of course, what Jesus is trying to do by exaggerating these two characters. But what I want us to do is I think it can be really easy to be like, well, I'm not like that Pharisee, so I don't have to worry about that. But what I want us to do is use our imaginations a little bit and kind of get into these two characters to find out where we sort of resonate. Because I think a lot of us probably are more in the middle, right? We can kind of oscillate between these two. So we're going to use our imaginations a bit. Let's begin by looking at how these two characters are actually similar. So how are they similar? Well, first, they go to the same church, which forces us to state the obvious. People come to church for all kinds of different reasons. And they come in very different places. Church has this fascinating way of drawing all kinds of characters. People we like, people we don't like. People who believe one thing about the Bible, people who believe other things. People who vote Republican, people who vote Democrat. People who like the Giants and people whose salvation needs to be questioned. I had to go there because pitchers and catchers reported this week, so I'm feeling baseball season. That was a joke, by the way. <laughs> Churches collect all kinds of people, healthy and unhealthy, and a strong church has room for both, for the outsider, for the tax collector, and for the insider, the Pharisee. So they go to the same church. Here's the answer to the question. Eugene Peterson writes, okay, the right reason for going to church is to pray. There's actually more to this quote. We'll come back to it in just a moment. But I want us to sit with this for right now. These two very different characters both go to the same church. And they both go to church for the right reason. To pray. Now, the last thing they have in common is this. They are both sinners. They have both made a mess of their lives. But here is where their stories start to diverge. Because while they're both sinners, only one of them knows it. <laughs> only one of them is willing to tell the truth about themselves. Now, how else are they different? Again, it's fairly obvious. But it has a lot to do with their posture and then, of course, the way that they pray. So the Pharisee comes right into the building, stands by himself, and you kind of get the impression that he stands in a place where lots of people can see him. He prays a longer prayer, 
And his prayer is kind of ridiculous, right? I mean, really think about it. God, thank you that I am not like other people. <laughs> Especially these other men, these extortioners, the unjust adulterers, or, and then he just goes there and points out someone, right? And just, I'm glad I'm not like that guy, <laughs> that tax collector. Thank you. <laughs> then, as if to like kind of just put the icing on the cake, he throws out some more credentials, right? I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. I'm awesome. Thanks, God. <laughs> this is a prayer of pure, unadulterated self-justification. Now, the tax collector, in very stark contrast, stands at a distance, physically symbolic of the outsiderness that he feels. He prays this very short prayer, and he does pray about himself, but he prays about himself in relation to God, not to anyone else, to God. He looks down. He can't even bring himself to look up. He looks down. He beats his breast, and he says very simply, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, again, very easy to Paint the tax collector as the good guy, the Pharisee as the bad guy. Jesus, again, trying to make a very, very clear point, an exaggerated point to get his message across. But I want to come back to the fact that they're both in the same church. And churches, ours included, are full of people with tax collector tendencies and Pharisee tendencies. Remember, we come to church for all different kinds of reasons. So again, I want us to use our imaginations a little bit and find ourselves in this story. What does the Pharisee look like? Maybe not in the extreme form of this parable, but in general, what does the Pharisee look like? Pharisee is respectable. He or she has a good job. They make a good income. They live in the right part of town. The Pharisee generally takes positions of leadership, enjoys serving, enjoys tithing, has a good opinion of him or herself. The Pharisee is familiar with the culture of church life. They understand how it works. They understand the rules and the game, and they play the game the right way. Churches are very good at rewarding Pharisee behavior. Now, who's the tax collector? What does the tax collector look like? The tax collector does not typically have a very good opinion of themselves. They carry these burdens from their past. They're troubled by secret sins and addictions or not-so-secret sins and addictions. They attend church in fits and starts. They may do well in life, but again, they carry these significant scars. They may have a difficult time feeling accepted by the wider congregation. Churches are generally not really sure what to do with the tax collector. Now again, few of us are as transparently self-righteous as the Pharisee or as brutally honest as the tax collector in this story, but we all sit somewhere on that continuum. Which leads us back to that quote from Eugene Peterson. The right reason for going to church, he says, is to pray. And then he says this, prayer is having an honest conversation about what is real. Prayer is having an honest conversation about what is is real. How many of you, when I was asking those questions, why are you here? Why do you come to church? We're thinking, man, I came to church to be real. I came to church to tell the truth about myself. 
And here's the really hard thing for us to kind of wrap our minds around. Church can actually be a great place to hide, to avoid the truth. My first paid ministry position at a church, there was a sweet couple who came across a guy named Brendan. He was from Ireland. Brendan. Brendan told them this really long, sad story of a life of hardship, and this couple was very compassionate towards him. And so they started to help him out in a lot of different ways. They got him a car. They connected him with someone else in the church who had an extra room in their home. They helped him find a job. And as a result of that relationship, Brendan started coming to church regularly. Now, some of us were kind of like, isn't this a great story about how Brendan's getting helped out and the community's coming around and it's awesome. And I remember this other person on staff who was older than me questioned his genuineness, said something to the effect of, yeah, Brendan's a great story, but sometimes people take advantage of Christian community. And I remember thinking, you jerk. Why are you spoiling this story? Why do you have to be so cynical? And then a couple of weeks later, Brendan disappeared. And as far as I know, those of us who were involved in that, none of us have ever heard from him again. Now, I'm not saying that that was necessarily a bad thing or that that is a bad story, but I will never forget that story or the truth that sometimes church is a great place to hide. Church can be a great place to hide. Alyssa Wilkinson, she's a professor at King's College, wrote this in a recent issue of Christianity Today. She says, God designed church to be the place where our most important identity formation occurs, among other people. We become more like Christ as we participate in the life of the church and form relationships there, but too often we think we must have our spiritual house in order before we can fully participate. Or we see church as a place of performance instead of a place where we are developed into more fully authentic, that is, more Christ-like humans. Very few of us come to church to take a long, hard look at what is real. We come to church, but we avoid Jesus because we don't want to face the truth about ourselves. We go to church, but we don't want to deal with what is real. And so church becomes this place where we get all of the benefits of being associated with God that we never actually deal with God. That, my friends, is the definition of hypocrisy. And this is why the tax collector's prayer is so important. In fact, there are long and old traditions in the Christian church around this prayer. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Very simple. Seven words is all he prays. But these are seven words that cut right through all of our pretensions, all of our self-justification, all of our self-righteousness. These are seven words that tell the truth. Now, some people might say, oh, man, that guy's being really hard on himself. His poor self-esteem. Someone should give that tax collector a hug. But how does this story end? Jesus says the tax collector goes home justified. Why? Because he was humble enough to tell the truth. 
You see, until we can really tell the truth, until we can be honest about who we are and who we are in relationship to God, we will be forever stuck in our muddled lives, stuck in our dysfunction, whatever flavor of dysfunction you choose. Jesus also said this, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So the big question for us this morning is, who are you in this story? Again, very few of us exist at the extremes in the way that Jesus tells the story. But in general, are you more like the Pharisee, trying to prove how much better you are than everyone else? Or are you more like the tax collector, hiding behind your brokenness and your baggage? The good news about Jesus is that we can be free. You can be free, but Jesus is gentle with us. The grace and the mercy extended to us through his death and resurrection is always available, always accessible. The only question is, will you accept it? Will you accept it? We cannot accept it with closed hands. We cannot accept it if we persist in the lie that I'm good. I've got this. I've got all this taken care of. And we cannot accept it if we persist in the lie that we've done too much, we've screwed up too much, we've sinned too much, whatever you want to call it, for God to forgive us. We can only accept it when we open our hands and tell the truth. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Let's pray. Father, that is our prayer this morning. Have mercy on us, a group, a community, a people of sinners who make a mess of things all the time. Help us to tell the truth about ourselves. And this morning, for all of us in this room, help us to sit with that question, to think about who we are in this story. Do we tend more towards the Pharisee, trying to prove how good we are, trying to justify ourselves, or do we tend more towards the tax collector? using our scars, our dysfunction, sort of as a badge of honor. Wherever we are, God, I pray again that we would have the courage to be honest, the courage to tell the truth about ourselves, and to open our hands, that we might receive your grace and your mercy in our lives. Pray all this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.